Looking for a unique gift? A new piece of art for your collection? Or a signed copy of my book? Head on over to FelixEddy.com. That's www.felixeddy.com. Thank you. Hi. My name is David McLean. I am the creator of this podcast. And, well, this podcast, uh, this episode is called Five which means if you have not heard one before, you might want to go back to the one called One, and then head to Two, and so on and so forth, and come back this way. That's how it's supposed to work. Don't go to Six, unless you've heard this one already. Don't go to Four, unless you've heard Three, and so on and so forth. This time we are actually going to see the tournament at Camelot. Anyway, that's it. Thanks for listening. I appreciate your support. Hope you enjoy the show. The news is next. Hi, you're listening to WXYZ Live from the island of Santiago, and this is the Time Traveler's News and World Report. Time traveling news and information for the discerning time traveler from any timeline. I'm Fergus McCartney. Today's approximate negative gate is the 2.78th of June, 3202. Summer is a mere 19.12 days away. Now here's the post-apocalyptic report. Sexies made contact with Santiago's Western Bay yesterday afternoon around 5 a.m. with wind speeds of almost 480 kilometers per hour. Town officials say the storm taxed the island's force field almost to the limit, causing 50-foot waves to splash up against the force field's exterior barrier and make the island look a little like it was inside a snow globe that had been shaken up. Funnily enough, there were snowflakes on top of the island during the storm. Anti-grav tennis courts are being installed this week at the Mighty Casey Sports Center in downtown Santiago, right at the corner of Main Street and 13 O'Clock Boulevard. Mighty Casey owners say if you find yourself floating as you walk past the sports center, please just cross the street, fanning your body in that direction with your arms if necessary. They apologize for any inconvenience. Finally, the Charles Darwin Park Zoo was reported the birth of four baby saber-toothed tiger kittens. The kittens were born the last week of April, but the zoo is announcing it just now. There are two females and two males, and their names are Sparky, Lightning, Halbeard, and Spike, and they are said to be in good health. Pictures can be found on their website, and this reporter can personally confirm that they appear to be both bitey and adorable. That's the post-apocalyptic news for this morning. We now return you to your regularly scheduled programming. And now, the infinitely spiraling clock. The continuing story of one man lost in time. tournament had been set for the third weekend in June, which was as safe a bet as anyone had in England for a sunny weekend. At any rate, it seemed to have started off well, with the sky offering only a few puffy clouds and a very pleasant breeze. Suggesting that the tournament was a spectacular affair was a statement that was just a tad underwhelming. 
It wasn't like the show would be closing with Jimi Hendrix playing the Star Spangled Banner. Still, it was a party, and Lord knows the world didn't seem to have enough of those right now. Keith Quick had saddled up his horse and rode to the tourney, trying to convince himself the whole way there that this wasn't a terrible idea. Chestnut, the dark brown mare he had bought off a farmer three years ago, was used to galloping through the fields near the tiny hamlet of Caerleon, where Keith had settled down. If you had asked him if he had chosen to live there because it was near Camelot, Keith would have said no, but he would have been lying. They did a lot of galloping because, and truly, not enough emphasis can be placed on this, there really was nothing else to do. Lately, Keith and Chestnut had been galloping through the field chasing a scarecrow while Keith held on to a tournament lance. Chestnut did not understand why they were doing this, but she did understand that it involved an extra bag of oats afterwards, which she thought was very fine. Keith arrived at the tourney around midday and was pleased to discover that the festivities were in full swing. Tables had been set out, and men and women of all walks were drinking and singing and enjoying bread and pheasant, both of which were being cooked in a makeshift outdoor hearth that someone had put up. There were people dancing, and a number of locals were selling goods that they had made. The court jester had come down and was juggling for a crowd who seemed delighted. A Punch and Judy show was entertaining some children. Camelot stood on the hill in the background, white and resplendent, in a manner that suggested that the best things in life were yet to come. Keith had shown up in all his nightly finery, the chainmail shirt, a sword he had made for a lord last summer that had never been paid for, a battered helm that he had traded for some horseshoes a year back, and a wooden shield that he had made in the backyard in his spare time. To the side of his horse, he had strapped three wooden lances. Keith was hoping that if he looked like a knight and acted like a knight, then he would get treated like a knight and be allowed to enter the tourney. Now is the time to test that theory. In the center of the festivities, on a path leading up to the castle, there was a table where a bored-looking gentleman sat holding a clipboard. Keith had been amazed that clipboards were a medieval phenomenon, but apparently they had been brought to Britannia by the Romans, who were firm believers in the power of a crippling bureaucracy. Keith dismounted his horse and strode over, hoping that he was making enough of an entrance that he would be difficult to ignore. "'May I help you?' the gentleman asked, staring down at Keith from over the bridge of a very long, crooked nose." I would like to enter the lists, Keith said. The man, who had an officious-looking sort of expression that Keith normally associated with bureaucrats, picked up his quill, dipped it in a bottle of ink, and began to write. Name? the bureaucrat asked. Keith nearly said Sir Keith the Quick, and then stopped himself. He was probably going to get shellacked in this tournament, and the locals knew his name. It might be best if the guy who got drubbed in the first round of the tournament didn't turn out to be the local blacksmith. So instead of using his real name, he said, The Ill-Made Knight. It was the first thing that popped into his head. The bureaucrat rolled his eyes. What country do you represent? he asked. Keith thought Nebraska, but said, France. 
The old coat of arms, the bureaucrat asked. Keith didn't have one. He needed to think quickly. Red stripes on a white field with a blue square with stars on it in the upper left corner, he blurted out. Then he added, I'll need to get that repainted. The bureaucrat made some notes on the scroll in front of him. Three pieces of silver, he said. Keith paid the man. Is that it? he wondered. As it turned out, that was it. The tourney schedule will be posted this year, the bureaucrat said. You can pitch your tent in the field on the left. Tourney vendors can be found over on the right. I wish you every strangest kind of luck, the bureaucrat said, and then he pretended that Keith did not exist. Keith went back to his horse and led her away. It was hard to believe what had just happened. He would now have to focus on winning the tournament. Although he had no real experience jousting, he had hoped that his knowledge of the future and life there would give him a slight edge over the medieval entrance. He had developed a theory about doing well at the tournament that was based on three basic strategic points. The first point was that he had the only suit of chain mail in the known universe. This meant that he would be significantly lighter and faster than any of the other knights. It also meant that he would not take a hit well as anyone wearing plates, so he would have to be careful. The second point was that he had been raised on his mother's steak and potatoes. At 180 centimeters tall, he tended to be roughly half a head taller than the average man of this era, who had spent most of his life being underfed. That meant he would probably have a much longer reach of his arm than anyone else in the field. The third point was that three years of pounding out horseshoes had made him lean and hard. He was in better shape than he'd ever been in in his whole life. And he was used to the feeling of metal smashing against metal. Keith hoped that these three things would give him an advantage. It was entirely possible that they would. And it was also entirely possible that he was about to get beaten. And badly. He found his way over to the shops, of which there were quite a number. There were blacksmiths, whose work he judged as professional, if not spectacular, but also artists, potters, seamstresses, and people selling every kind of food imaginable. The people seemed to have come from as far away as Scotland, and the assembled crowd was chatting away in any number of languages. Keith heard Latin, Gaelic, Welsh, and a few that he didn't recognize. Keith found his way to a painter who painted a crude series of red and white stripes in a blue square with white stars in one corner of his shield. One night at Camelot would be jousting with the stars and stripes. Beyond that, Keith suddenly found himself with an abundance of free time. This was unusual for him, and he didn't know what to do with himself. He found a vendor selling a plowman's lunch, and another selling ale, and sat at a long table that had too many people sitting at it already. Calling this the golden age of anything was a bit of a misnomer. The assembled throngs were rowdy, bawdy, unkempt, and in need of a kind hand and a hot shower. They were exceptionally crude and had teeth that would undoubtedly give birth to several millennia worth of stereotypes about English dental hygiene. 
They were having a grand and glorious evening, and although Keith mostly kept to himself, years of isolation had turned him into a shy person. He found himself enjoying their company tremendously. It was a little after sunset when a herald came over and made the big announcement. I have the lists for the fast runs in the morning. The attorney seemed to have a set of rules that had been borrowed from the Premier Cup by way of the American Electoral College. There were a few things that the Herald talked about that Keith did not immediately understand, but the one that he did came toward the end of the Herald's announcement. Okay, the King Steward jousting the ill-made knight. After the announcement, there was a fair amount of discussion among the locals as to who would be favored and who would not. Keith didn't follow a lot of this, as he didn't know many of the names. More than a few, like his, sounded fake. Various spectators were betting what few coins they had on one night or another. It was only when there was a lull in the conversation, when Keith heard something that interested him. I pity about the ill-made night, a scrawny, toothless old man said. Well, it had to be someone, didn't it? A man leaning against a tree and drinking an ale said churlishly. What do you mean? Keith asked. The man leaning against a tree shrugged. Well, Caddy's the king's brother, isn't he? His opponent will have to take a dive. Is that what he's expected to do? Keith asked with a small smirk. Course, someone said. They'd bloody well throw him in the dungeon if he didn't, wouldn't they? Keith smiled. He couldn't tell you why if his life depended on it, but when he heard the suggestion that they might throw him in the dungeon if he won the fight, he wasn't frightened in the slightest. Just the opposite. He felt elated. Someone is threatening to throw me in jail. It seems like old times, he thought. Keith had no squire, so he got up before dawn. He had spent the night tossing and turning under a tree in a tiny makeshift tent, trying to ignore drunken revelers who carried on long into the night. Although he hadn't slept much, he wasn't tired in the slightest. Adrenaline was pumping through his veins. At the time, there was no sporting event like the joust, and there never would be again. The excitement of the assembled group was the palpable energy of a crowd about to see the 37 World Series. There were children on their father's shoulders, maids flirting with young knights, bookies, men drinking ale, and old grandfathers talking about how the jousting was much better in their day. If someone had added a peanut and crackerjack salesman, Keith would have expected to see a left-hander warming up in the bullpen. Except that this wasn't a baseball game, it was a blood sport. Boxing had been a big deal in Keith's day, and from time to time Keith had even seen a ref stop a fight once or twice when the fighter had gotten roughed up too badly. This was different. This was a sport where men with weapons charged at each other. There would be blood. You could count on it. There were eight knights jousting in the first pass, eight men hiding their faces behind armor-plated helms. Everyone was fully suited, with squires fluttering about their chosen knights like bridesmaids around a bride. With their helms down, it was difficult to tell who was nervous and who was not, 
but Keith was pretty sure that he wasn't the only one. Most of the nights seemed a little fidgety, although one night with an imposingly ominous black skull painted on his shield stood stock still like he was made from stone. No one seemed to be chatty except for one knight who, as luck would have it, turned out to be Keith's opponent. Can't believe I'll have to make the first pass, Keith snapped at his squire grumpily. It's outrageous. Gawain isn't out here at Tristan or Pelinor. I'm the king's brother. I should have had a free round. Too true, the squire nodded. Kay snorted. Keith could tell that he liked the sound of his own voice. Shouldn't be too hard, I suppose. Which one of these lovelies am I up against? What's his name? The squire looked around nervously. Tis a knight errant, my lord. Fighting with a field of red and white stripes, with a square of blue with stars in one corner. Kay surveyed the assembled knights until he caught a glimpse of Keith's shield. Oi! You! he sneered. You're up against me! Keith nodded. Kay looked him up and down. What's that thing you're wearing? Keith shrugged. Chainmail, he said nonchalantly. Kay snorted. Have you seen armor like that before? he asked his squire. His squire looked at Keith. Might have done, he mumbled noncommittally. Kay smirked. I would hope for rain, he sneered. Rain will rust your armor before mine, Keith thought, but he didn't say it out loud. After what seemed like an eternity, there was a flourish and a fanfare and then a deafening silence. Keith heard the words, Let the joust begin, shouted in the distance. Keith both did and didn't watch the jousts, which is a way to say that he was riveted to them, but kept his helm down and made sure it looked like he was disinterested. The first match was between the knight with the skull on his shield and a heavy knight who seemed to be betting that his size would carry him through to the next round. On the first pass, the heavy knight clipped the skull knight on the shoulder badly and seemed to be getting the better of him. But the skull knight shook this off, and on the second and third passes, the skull knight was able to connect with the larger knight's ribs. On the fourth pass, the skull knight got him on the helm, and the larger knight went down and had to be helped back up by his squire. He conceded the joust with his head rolling around on his shoulders like he was a rag doll. The second fight involved a small knight who, for reasons that Keith wasn't clear on, seemed to be a crowd favorite. He was fighting an older knight who looked as though he did not have too many tourneys left in him. The small knight was surprisingly agile, but the older knight was an excellent rider and clearly had experience on his side. They went eight passes before the small knight wore him down, and Keith ended up thinking he admired the loser more. The third contest was between two knights who clearly thought that shouting was an integral part of the process. Both men bellowed like they were having a bowel movement during a war movie. Although they were both particularly adept at shouting, neither one was very good at hitting the other with a lance, and Keith had lost track of how many passes went by before one had knocked the other down. After that, Keith got on his horse. He was mounted a good deal behind the crowd and had propped up his lances on a tree next to him. As he grabbed a lance, Keith heard a voice shout, 
Next match, Sir Kay, foundling brother to the king versus the ill-made knight. Sir Kay did not seem to be a popular favorite with the crowd. He appeared to have gone with the strategy that the guy with the biggest horse was going to win. His mount, an enormous black gelding with the dispassionate expression of a hellhound doing a good day's work, looked big enough to haul a wagon for a Midwestern beer company. Even with his helm on, Kay looked snooty. Kay found his way to one end of the field and Keith went to the other. There was a pause, and then a silence, and then a flourish. The horses went galloping forward. Keith brought his mare, Chestnut, up to a full gallop and pointed his lance at Kay. Kay's horse was thundering straight at him. Keith did what probably every kid who ever imagined jousting had ever done and pointed the lance right at Kay's chest. Kay came thundering at him. It was just a fraction of a second before they clashed. But Keith realized that Kay wasn't pointing the tip of his lance at his torso. He was aiming for his shoulder. Crash! Keith felt pain tear through his whole body as Kay's lance connected with his left shoulder, and the lance in his right hand shattered against Kay's shield. Keith bent backwards, gripping the horse with his boots and trying desperately not to pass out. The crowd roared. Kay trotted past him confidently. He was undoubtedly thinking that Keith was a lightweight and he had made quick work of him. Somehow Keith's fingers managed to find the reins of the horse. He clung on as Chestnut finally came to a halt, trying to shake off the feeling that he had just pulled his arm out of its socket. He pulled up short, threw down the grip of his broken lance, and then trotted back to retrieve a second one. Keith rolled his shoulder around in his socket, trying to pop it back into place. Just as Kay lined up for the second pass, he felt the painful but satisfying click that indicated his bones were back where they should be. Kay had used his experience to try and defeat Keith on the first run, and it had nearly worked. Taking out his shield arm would have effectively removed Keith from the remainder of the tournament. This time, Keith tried a different tactic. He pointed his lance at Kay's helm, but swung it around at the last second, taking aim at Kay's hip. Crash! Keith connected with Kay's hip. He threw his opponent off balance, but failed to knock him off his horse. He also successfully deflected Kay's spear, knocking it against his shield and spinning it out of the way. Keith saw Kay shake his head in frustration as he came around for another pass. The third pass was not successful. Kay aimed at Keith's helm. It was an easy attack to deflect, but in doing so, Keith blocked his own view and couldn't see what he was striking. Keith had aimed for Kay's elbow and missed, connecting instead with Kay's breastplate. Kay twisted his shield inward, connected with Keith's lance, breaking off the end with an impressive crack. Keith looked down at his last remaining lance. He realized that Kay had played a strategy and it had worked. I wonder how much of an amateur I look right now, he thought, picking up his last lance. Although Keith couldn't see Kay's expression under his helm, he was sure that Kay must be feeling confident. 
He came off better in two out of three passes and had made sure that Keith had broken every lance he owned except one. Keith decided to try a different approach. He brought Chestnut to a three-quarter gallop and aimed the lance at Kay's neck. Kay came thundering at him, pointing his lance at Keith's helm again. Clearly he thought that he had come up with a winning strategy and was not about to let go. Keith stared at his opponent intently. He was ten meters away, then he was five, they were two meters apart. At the last possible moment, Keith ducked his head downward and adjusted his lance, aiming it for Kay's wrist. Kay's lance swung wide to Keith's left, and Keith's lance connected with Kay's hand with a small crack. Back when Keith was in Little League, this would be what would be known as a bunt. He pulled up his horse and turned to look at his opponent. Kay was pulling off his helm and using several of the Latin words that Keith remembered rude boys learning in school. Kay dismounted and called for his squire. Keith had successfully connected with Kay's left hand, which held his lance. Judging by the difficulty Kay had in taking off the gauge, Keith was sure that he had succeeded in what he was trying to do. He had broken Kay's lance hand. It was probably a dirty trick, but Keith didn't care. Kay had irritated him so much in the few moments that he had known him that sympathy was beyond his capacity. Fool fate! Kay shouted to the king while clutching his left hand with his right. He must forfeit the match to me. The king, who had been sitting quietly in what another millennium would undoubtedly be called the owner's box, raised an eyebrow. On what grounds? he asked. Kay gave the king an angry look. He didn't try to knock me over, Kay protested. He just broke me flipping hand. Yes, the king agreed. That was... Clever. This was clearly not the answer that Kay wanted to hear. He dodged me, Kay said. I can move better with that, that shiny shirt, Kay yelled. That was clever as well, the king acknowledged. Kay swore loudly. Keith continued to sit there on his horse and stare. He wasn't sure what to do. The queen stood up. Somehow Queen Guinevere had escaped Keith's notice until now. Since the last time that he had seen her, Guinevere had matured, but only slightly. She looked less like a high school sophomore now and more like a woman. She carried herself with a certain grace and composure, and the air of innocence around her was gone. When she stood up, the rest of the crowd stood with her, even Arthur. Whether or not what he did was fair, Sir Kay is unable to compete further. She pointed out, The ill-made knight is ready to fight now. Whether we like it or not, he has won the hour. Kay cursed and walked away to find a monk to bandage his hand. After that, he retreated to the interior of the castle, where he would spend a lifetime keeping the king's household books and worrying about ledgers and debts and would never pick up a lance again. Keith trotted off to the far side of the field, removed his helm, and dismounted. He was greeted almost immediately by the older knight who had fought valiantly in the second joust, but had lost. Good show, the older man said, shaking his hand. Not by the books, of course, but Kay has always been a bit of a blowhard, 
so it's just as well that he's out. Thanks, Keith said. He didn't know what else to say. Sator, the older knight said. The gray in his beard suggested that he was a man of about 48, and the look in his eyes showed that he was grateful to be out of the tourney. You'll need to be more than clever in your next joust, though you've drawn Gawain. The man is a bear. Do you have any advice? Keith asked. Tor smiled. Bears move slowly, he said. I would move quickly and stay on your mount. Keith's next bout took a whopping six passes. Gawain was a bear, all right. He was broad-shouldered and barrel-chested and would have made a good defensive lineman for the New York Giants. He was big and heavy, and his lance hurt on contact. But Keith lived up to his surname, dodging and moving quickly. He eventually wore Gawain down and took him out with a quick lance to the sternum that left his opponent too winded to continue. That left Keith, Tristan, Pelinor, and the knight with the skull on his coat of arms to move forward to the next round. By the third round, Keith seemed to have garnered some respect. Judging by the cheering, the assembled crowd had convinced themselves that they really believed Keith was going to win all along, and a few coins had changed hands. In the third contest, Keith faced Pelinor, which seemed like the better draw. Pelinor was ancient. There were stories that he had fought against the Romans. But the old dog proved to be tough. He possessed a wiry strength and a knowledge of horsemanship that served him well. Keith defeated him on the twelfth pass, and only because the older man had absolutely worn himself out. Unfortunately, as Keith came to a halt on his final run, he noticed a crack that ran all the way down his lance. That's it, a voice said. The final contest on the day will be made between the ill-made knight and Sir Miles' moratorium. The crowd applauded wildly, partly in anticipation of being able to go and have another ale. Keith rode out to the center of the pitch and held up a hand. Wait, he shouted. I can't continue. The crowd was silent. The king sat up in his chair slightly. Are you injured? He shouted to Keith with genuine concern. No, Keith shouted back. Keith looked at Guinevere momentarily and shrugged. I broke my last lance, he admitted. The crowd laughed. The king smiled. Can someone give this poor man a lance? He asked, which drew another laugh from the crowd. Someone shouted, I have a lance, my lord. Keith turned his head to look where the voice came from. It was Sir Tor. Keith trotted his horse over to where he was. He followed the old man back to his tent, where Sir Tor handed Keith a lance. Let me guess. Keep my head down and stick and move, Keith said. Tor shrugged. That's not bad advice, he said. I have been watching this young man. He seems as green as you are. But don't equate inexperience with an inability to knock you over. He's still got a lance, and he just beat Tristan, who I would have thought would win the tourney. Keep your head about you. Easier said than done, Keith thought. 
Although he wasn't seriously wounded, he felt like he had just arm wrestled with King Kong. The other guy has been through as many matches today as I have, he reminded himself. Keith lined up and took a deep breath. Chestnut took this moment to stamp the dirt with her rear hoof. It was clear that Chestnut thought she would be deserving an extra large bag of oats after this. There was a flourish of horns, and he galloped toward the Skull Knight at full speed. Keith found something going through his head. It was less of a thought and more of a chant. I am going to win this. I am going to win this and earn a seat at the round table. I am going to beat him even if I have to kill him. He dug his heels into Chestnut and galloped forward. Keith connected with the knight's shoulder on the first pass, but his opponent clipped him, cracking a rib. Up until now, the chainmail had served him well. It had proved lighter and faster, but on a direct hit in the right spot, it had its weaknesses. Under his helm, Keith winced in pain. Just one more pass, he thought. So he took another pass. This time his lance bounced off his opponent's thigh when Keith had to dodge a lance to the neck at the very last second. He made another pass, and then another. Keith tried to focus on the knight's jousting arm, hoping that he might disable his opponent as he did with Sir Kay, but it wasn't working. The Skull Knight was the only one in the tourney whose height was roughly the same as his, and he seemed to cut through the air like a knife through hot butter. On the seventh pass, Keith connected with the knight's sternum and nearly knocked him off his horse, but this came at a terrible price. As he pulled up on the far side, he saw it, a tiny hairline crack in the lance that he had borrowed. He would be lucky to get one more out of it, and then he would be done for. He would have to forfeit after that. It didn't seem fair to borrow another. Keith knew that he had to come up with a plan. Taking a deep breath, he threw his shield onto the ground. The crowd gave out an audible gasp. Giving up your shield seemed to be the first step towards suicide. Keith put Chestnut into the fastest gallop the two of them could manage. One way or another, this would be their last run. They might as well end with a big finish. The crowd stood in awed silence as the horses came thundering at each other. They were 20 meters apart, then they were 10, they were 5 meters apart. At the last moment, Keith swung his lance far wide on the outside of the Skull Knight and then ducked. The Skull Knight seemed to realize what was happening, but too late. His lance went over Keith's head, missing wide, while Keith caught him directly across the neck, clotheslining him perfectly. The lance shattered, but not before knocking the Skull Knight off his horse. The crowd went wild and swarmed the pitch. Keith had won the day. The Skull Knight lay in the mud, looking dejected. "'Jack!' Keith called out. He was surrounded by well-wishers and couldn't get off his horse. "'Jack!' The Skull Knight didn't answer. As fast as he could manage it, Keith's opponent climbed on his horse. "'Jack!' Keith called out a third time, but in another instant the knight had ridden away, first slowly toward the edge of the crowd, and then at a canter, heading off into the rolling hills." Keith had never seen him take off his helm, and Jack Cassidy had never admitted who he was. Keith would feel guilty about this for years. He had stolen Jack's moment, and he knew it. He would even feel guilty about it after it had occurred to him that if Jack hadn't stormed off, Arthur probably would have made them both knights, even though Jack had lost. 
Winning a tournament wasn't like taking the gold medal at the Olympics. They could bend the rules. Keith's feelings of guilt were momentarily put aside as Sir Tor came over and shook Keith's hand. Impressive, Sir Tor congratulated him. I'm sorry about the lance, Keith apologized. If you'll tell me how I can get one of those male shirts you have on, we'll call it even, Tor said. Suddenly the crowd around Keith parted like the Red Sea, and Arthur and Guinevere stepped through. Keith smiled and then looked around. He still wanted to go after Jack Cassidy, and his distraction showed in his face. "'Good show,' Arthur said, shaking his hand. He was noticeably older than the first time Keith had seen him. His face and beard were fuller, and he carried himself in a manner that implied that the weight of office hung about him even on celebratory days. He smiled just slightly like he had been drinking wine, which he probably had. Guinevere stood at his side. Keith noticed that her red hair was longer, but it still seemed to glimmer in the sun. She seemed to be eyeing Keith coldly. We never had anyone break that many lances before. It must be a record. Thanks, Keith said. The crowd laughed. Arthur squinted at him. Keith could tell that he was trying to remember where he had seen him before. Do I know your father? he asked. Keith shook his head. No, my lord, we met three years ago at the siege of Leodegrance's castle. Arthur slapped his own thigh and pointed at Keith. That's right, he said, the knight with the dragon. You are from France, I think. Uh, yes, my lord, Keith mumbled awkwardly. That was what he had told the king at the time, and he had been saying it to people ever since. At this point, he had said it so many times that it seemed like the truth. Well, we probably should have done this a long time ago, Arthur said. He drew the sword from his scabbard. Kneel. Keith kneeled. Do you promise to serve the round table? To commit to defend the honor of maidens and children, of rich and poor alike, as befitting a true knight of this court? I do, Keith said. Arthur tapped him on each shoulder with Excalibur. In honor of your excellent performance today, I dub thee Sir Lancelot, he cried. Rise! The crowd laughed even harder. Lancelot realized who he was. I used to take off on the weekend Hoping I could make it mine I'd ride shotgun in a beat-up Nova I was free and feeling fine I was looking for bad choices Like alcohol, drugs, or despair But none of those sounded appealing 
when there was music in the air. Play it on the radio for me. 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 My friends and I, we formed a band Somewhat laissez-faire We played the music from the future But the present didn't care I guess we were headed nowhere We were short on talent and gear But we played like our lives depended on it And we had nothing left to fear Play it on the radio for me. 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 The girls, they seem to love us But that's as far as it went My rock star dreams stayed in my head My spirit was all spent I don't miss those days now I'm looking to the ones ahead But I miss the music inside of me And my radio is dead Play it on the radio for me. 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 Hi, my name is David McLean and I am the creator of this podcast. I just wanted to say thank you for listening. If you want to leave a review or subscribe, that is very cool. I am still a nervous wreck when it comes to things like that, so I may never look at the reviews. It's depressing just to look at how few of them there are most of the time. But thank you. This is just a writing piece that I've been working on and trying to work out and this turned out to be a good way to do that next week uh, if you 
stay with us. We're going to hear from the dragon again, and we are going to go to a masquerade ball. That should be interesting. Anyway, thanks for listening. Have a good day. By the way, I've never said it, but I wrote all this, I recorded all this, the musical instruments are all me playing, which probably explains a lot about the quality. If you like the story, you might want to check out the Time Travelers Resort and Museum. Don't buy it off of Amazon. I don't make a dime when you do. I hate having to point that out. Uh, you can go to my wife's website, felixeddy.com. Thanks. <laughs>